Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Okay, so uh, this morning we're going to be finding ourselves in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Uh, while you find your way there, uh, my name is George Marshall. I'm one of the elders here. For those of you who are guests, it's great to have you this morning. You're all going to have to come forward by three seats. Everybody, Just kidding. Let me find it myself. And starting in Deuteronomy 6.1, he says, Now this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So how do we approach Scripture? Do we treat it as a fortune teller? Yep, that's the word for me today. Is it a magic talisman? We have that perfect quote. We'll convince everybody on social media. Is it the daily routine, just the thing we do because that's what we do as good Christians? Is it a myth? Is it something intended for children? We want to make sure that our children hear it, but once we're out of that, we can move on to the more important things. Is it a good read? Is it something everybody should just know because we live in a culture where it's steeped in the Bible? Is it cannon fodder? Is it just an opportunity to find something that you can just knock your opponent out on, on the web or in a conversation? Or is it to us truly God's word? Is it something that we come to expecting to be spoken to from God? Let's go ahead and pray before we begin. God, we thank you for another opportunity to come into your house to worship together, to hear from your word, to read um, your very words, God. God, we thank you for the way you have kept it, um, prepared it for your people, um, that they might know you better, that they might experience the love of God and the community um, that was your intention from the start to create. God, we thank you for this time, and we ask you that you would be present, that you would open our hearts, our ears, 
um, that we would be ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord, your God, commanded me to teach you. This is the commandment. We come to chapter 6 on the heels of uh, the Ten Commandments. Moses has reminded the people of their agreement to enter treaty with a holy God, one who's rescued them from Egypt and one who has brought them to the to within spitting distance of the promised land. They haven't entered yet, but they're nearly there. Deuteronomy reads like a covenant. We don't deal with covenants very often. We don't even really like reading contracts. We probably scan through them as we agree to something and then move on. Um, but it reads like a covenant between a nation of men and its Lord. The Ten Commandments are covenant stipulations. These are the things that you just, this is how we're going to behave. And it's followed by the, the demonstration of the wisdom and good judgment of the Lord, the new king. In this case, God himself. And Moses puts it simply, this is the commandment. Singular. We come to a law and we're, we're going to see statute upon statute and rule upon rule, case law. But Moses sums it up and says simply, this is the commandment. There's one command, many statutes, but the one command is covenant love and loyalty to Yahweh. These verses, which we're dealing with right now, verses 1 through 3, um, answer Israel's likely question of why. Why did God command Moses to bring and teach this law? Why are the statutes and rulings important? Why go over this again right as they enter the land. Wouldn't it be better to go over battle formations? Moses starts with God's promises to their fathers. He says that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Moses reminds their fathers, or reminded their fathers, of God's promise to give the land of Canaan in fulfillment of God's promise to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the rebellious and cantankerous Israelite army ran in fear of what they heard from the land. A bad report left them with a bad taste in their mouth, and God vowed that none of that generation would enter the land. And so a generation has passed in the wilderness. The children now stand ready to go forward, and Moses pleads with them to trust and obey their Lord. So what does Moses say? He says, if you want to enter the land to possess it as your own, God's command is to hear the laws, the statutes, the rulings, and obey. Trust the character of God and his words of comfort and promise to you. Be faithful where your fathers were faithless. And Moses continues in verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Likely we all know this one. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, but how many of us would often rather the quick fix, the, the shortcut, the sure thing? And I mean the sure thing we can control, of course. God is a sure thing, but Israel can't control him. 
Um, he's Aslan, the untamed lion. Israel will again and again seek the sure thing, to be like the nations around her, to not depend on God himself. But scripture is a steady reminder that God cautioned them from the beginning about what he required of them, what would guarantee long life and rest in the land, children and days. God's law, it promised the wisdom to be successful, to live long and see the blessing of sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters. It's not a guarantee of success apart from God, but it was a call to trust beyond what their eyes could see. The people were still there. The cities were still well defended. But God said, trust me, you will enter the land successfully. True wisdom is found in only a God who is sovereign over the affairs of earth, who judges rightly, who communicates with us. He doesn't have to. And faithfully dwells with his people. To have the, the word of God a holy law and to have his very presence what nation could boast of those kind of blessings? Uh, another important thing that we see in this verse is only a hint here, uh, but is borne out in the very next verse, which reads, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. The land kind of reminds us, it should remind us, of the promise and call to Abraham. Abraham was told, you're going to have generations and descendants and kings are going to come from you and I'm going to give you a land and your people after you. Um, but here they're also reminding, uh, reminded of the commissioning of Adam and Eve. So not only do we have Adam, but he brings it all the way back to Adam and Eve where they have a creation mission to multiply, to have dominion as God's agents. And here God says, you are the fulfillment of that. If you will just trust and obey, you will enter the land, you will be numerous, you will fulfill the purpose that I gave you from the start. The results of covenant faithfulness are all the best of the land. Milk and honey, vindication of their wilderness wandering, fruitfulness, and rest. But covenant faithfulness isn't lip service. Here, but not just here. Here with a heart to respond, careful to obey. God is calling them to fully commit, not just to the minimum. Um, this is not the kind of faith that rests in finding loopholes. Oh God, if I just do this little thing, I can get around and I can, I can please him, but do it my way. This is the kind of faith that follows even when there's a cost. So we read Moses' words and we ask ourselves as followers of Christ, Am I submitting myself to the word of God? And then as a body, are we humbly submitted to God's word? Does it inform who we are as a people? Do we have an accurate knowledge of both God's promises and what discipleship and commitment entail? Are we seeking God's voice? Or are we just looking for confirmation of our own wills within the pages of scripture? Like Israel, we have a rich inheritance in God's word. Uh, God in his grace has given us a rich body of history, of teaching, of wisdom, and, and most of all, beauty. I mean, we, we can't really argue with the beauty of scripture. 
Moses' words here bear out four features that are commonly used. Four features or attributes of Scripture for us to consider, and I just want to kind of run through them. The first one is authority. Moses doesn't speak on his own. This is not just a suggestion of Moses, hey, I've been a military commander for a while, this is what you need to do. No, Moses speaks what God has told him to say. He declares only what God has commanded him to teach the nation. And the second one is necessity. This is generally true of, this is what we believe of Scripture, um, but Moses depends on it as well. General revelation should be, I want to say is, but apparently it's not always the case, enough to convince us of God's eternal character and our guilt and need for forgiveness. But God's word, scripture, is necessary for us to know how to approach him. We can figure out our guilt. We can figure out our failing and our broken humanity, but we do need scripture. We need God's word to know how to deal with that, how to live life wisely, how to deal with the sin that plagues us. So God specifically speaks his will and judgments to Israel so that they can know how to be successful in the land. The third attribute is clarity. And this ultimately means that God's word is understandable. It doesn't require a master's degree to respond in faith. There's plenty of people who will never go to school who understand what it means to approach God because of the words of faith, the words in scripture. So there's a lot we can learn uh, that will help us understand specific stories. We live culturally distant from the people who receive God's word initially, but none of those things are roadblocks to us understanding what scripture clearly teaches. It isn't a carefully kept code. We don't have to filter everything through the perfect filter so that we can read it rightly. Scripture is clear. And then the last attribute is sufficiency. Um, We don't need to look anywhere else. Israel, given the word for Moses, doesn't have to go somewhere else to find the right way to enter the land. The law is sufficient to teach them how to enter it, to be successful and to be fruitful. And that's the same for us. God's word doesn't claim to contain all knowledge, doesn't have a lot to say about calculus, doesn't have a lot to say about coding, but it lacks nothing required for dealing with our sin and finding joy in Christ. For Israel, faithful obedience to the command is a guarantee of God's provision and continued blessing. So the question is, are we listening with a will to follow? Do we approach scripture as authoritative, necessary to our lives, clear in its teaching, and sufficient to guide and teach us all that God requires? First, Do we come to scripture as an authority? Or is it more like guidance counselor? Apologies to any guidance counselors out there. When we consider someone an authority, we typically try to do what they say. The reason they're an authority is because they know what they're talking about, hopefully. But in our sin and pride, we can instead treat scripture as a merely well-meant counsel. Good advice, malleable, set aside when we feel we know better, or we have the bigger picture, or the more modern outlook. We can treat the word of God as anything but the trustworthy, authoritative word of God. For example, uh, scripture gives us specific teaching about sin, um, its causes and its effects. Do we 
submit ourselves or do we quibble, becoming Scripture's judge and executioner? Do we seek to justify and excuse our own sin rather than seek God's cleansing? Do we downplay our sin and point to the sin of others hoping to avoid Christ's gaze? Or do we just not give it a second thought? Another example, um, how we worship God well and properly. In the law, God shares with Israel how to and how not to conduct its worship and offerings, its festivals and its celebrations. The law speaks authoritatively into Israel's worship. Similarly, God instructs the church in proper Christian worship through both the teaching of Jesus and the words of Paul to the various churches. Do we treat these as merely suggestions? To be set aside when things aren't working or when we crave something new and exciting? Do we see God's word as authoritative instruction for Christian worship? Overriding taste and and cultural convention. So that's authority. Even when we recognize God's word as authoritative, we might still fail to treat it as necessary. We can ask ourselves, have we moved on? Uh, Do we think we've gleaned all we can? Do we look to scripture as relevant to our lives now? Um, I did an extended couple months uh, time in Ohio um, as a college student, and we canvassed, which means we went door to door and we asked people about their needs for Christian discipleship, um, a church in the area that would preach God's word. Um, And the area of Ohio we were in was largely Catholic churches and largely elderly. And the standard response was, I don't need that anymore. My kids have all grown up. I sent them to Catholic school. I sent them to church. But they're all grown up. I don't need anything like God's word to be preached or a church in my area or Christian discipleship in my community. They had moved on. It was no longer relevant to their lives, at least in their own opinion. But we see, do we deal with murder and hatred? We see it on the news. Do we have people who lie, who gossip, who betray, who act foolishly around us, who thrive on conflict, who hate parents, who shirk responsibility? Do we have those who would profit off of injustice, ill rule, who would seek an advantage at the expense of the weak, and the helpless. This may be the most frequent attack on scripture, that it simply is not relevant. But when we look, we find scripture rich with instruction and wisdom on how to deal with our sin, how to live together in harmony. So then is God's word necessary? or Or do we live lives distant from him, so distant that we struggle to see its application. That's often the problem. We just don't see the application because we're over here and God is walking this way. Do we say, thank you very much. You got us this far, but I think we as a people have got it under control now. Have we immersed ourselves in scripture so that it actually speaks to us, that it actually can inform the way we act and the way we respond to temptation? Or do we avoid it like math or a foreign language? My kids, for some reason, are avoiding foreign languages. I I don't understand it. I don't. 
But do we treat scripture as only valid or only helpful to the pastor, the scholar? Is it relevant for our daily lives? That covers necessity, being necessary. On the clarity front, do we come to scripture expecting to hear God speak? Or do we expect just to check a box and move on with our day? Are we confused because God seems to be answering the wrong questions? All the questions we're throwing at God seem unanswered. It's because we're asking the wrong things. We're, we're asking to have our own desires taken care of when he is calling us to something different. Or on the other end of the spectrum, do we approach Scripture with an arrogance that we, with our superior knowledge alone, can understand the Bible? You've got to be like me and understand the Bible as I do, or obviously you have no clue what you're talking about. Are we trusting the right voices? Do we only ever see Scripture through the lens of a friend or a favorite author? Does God's Word always require something to be added to it in order to soften its rough edges, to pretty it up or make it palatable? This, is, this last one speaks to our recognition of Scripture as sufficient. It's all too common that as we come to Scripture, we might want to see it through some lens. We can't see Scripture as it is. We have to do it through some lens because we don't consider it sufficient for the problems that ail us. Ultimately, God's Word, the Scriptures, invite us to come ready to hear, not ready to argue back with our caveats and our loopholes based on whatever the culture has offered us today. And that brings us again to Moses' instruction. Uh, in verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Now this goes back to the commandment we saw Moses teaching in verse 1. It functions as a summation of the entire law. To love the Lord your God, the one, the only. It's one among many laws, but it is itself, is itself the guiding principle of the law. Uh, in Luke 10, a lawyer comes to Jesus and challenges him. He demands of him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus puts the question right back to him, as he often does. And the answer is Deuteronomy 6.5, which we just read, and Leviticus 19.18. Love God wholly and love, your, uh, love my neighbor as myself. Of course, in that passage, he then tries to make it, oh, I knew that, by saying, you know, who's my neighbor? In any case, we might treat things as if the commandment, the statutes and the rules, was to be divided into two parts. As if we hear Jesus responding to this person and say, yeah, there are some laws that are meant about loving God, and there are some laws that are meant about loving people. But the reality we see here from Moses is that the whole law is summed up in love God holy. And it's only as we love God holy that we properly love our neighbor. But I go too fast. Let's look back at each part. Uh, first, our God. Our God is personal, relational, communicating. God doesn't have to communicate with us. He doesn't have to deal with us or entertain us or talk with us or sit with us and be patient with us but he is. 
The God revealed in the law is the same God revealed by the prophets, uh, the same God who speaks in the wisdom literature, in the history, in the gospels, and is Jesus himself. He communicates, responds to the prayers of men and women. He sees suffering, judges kings, overturns nations. And he's made a covenant with Israel quite apart from anything they deserved. They weren't worthy. They hadn't done anything extra special to earn God's favor. But he makes promises to them anyway and calls them to love him. Second, he is the one, unique, only, alone. As there is only one God, all loyalty and love was due to him. Nobody else made a covenant with Israel. God did. And so he calls them to love him uniquely, alone, because he is unique and alone. The gods of Egypt were nothing to Israel's God. He made a mockery of them. The idols, the gods of Canaan, should be no different. But the question remained, would Israel demonstrate that kind of love and faithfulness? Or would they fail as their parents had? And so Moses describes the kind of love using three categories. He says, love with all your heart, love with all your life or soul, and then love with all your might. And so we might break that down. The heart, you know, that's your mental faculty. I know we think of the brain as that, but they didn't do that. They said the heart. So that's your, your mental abilities, your thought, your will, your intention. Your life, your soul, is really your being, your very existence. This is when we talk about discipleship. We talk about the cost of discipleship often rests on that life, that exertion of energy, that living day to day. And then finally, might. You might think that the word is actually something like muchness. It's your energy, it's your skill, it's your resources, it's your capacity. And God says, you're supposed to love with all of that. So all your mind, all your will, all your intention, all of your very being and existence, all of your capacity to serve, all of it. All of it. That's how you're supposed to love. It isn't commanded as a work before they could see God's rescue. God isn't saying, do this first before entering the land. He's saying, do it as you enter. God has already rescued their fathers, their mothers, their grandparents from Egypt. He's shown mercy and faithfulness all along the way up to this moment. God has already shown them immeasurable grace, and love is supposed to be the natural response to that. In the New Testament, we would call this discipleship. Following Christ, taking up our cross, and following. Not to earn salvation, but to demonstrate and confirm it to become united to Christ and his people. And just as with Israel, love and obedience are united and connected. And this interplay between love and obedience is uniquely tied to scripture in the way God provides for his people to understand his will. And we're going to see this in John 14. I'm going to quickly read this, but I really, I, I mentioned it in Slack. Maybe sit on this later today. Read through John 14 and see the way in which love command, and the Spirit are tied together. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you, and I will be in you. He says, love means you're going to keep my commandments, or love means you're going to keep my commandments. And because of this, he's going to send a helper. He's going to send the spirit. And that spirit is going to be in the, the same as he is. He's among them right now, but when he's not among them, the spirit will be among them to teach, to instruct, to give them wisdom. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Those who love, obey, Jesus provides with the Spirit so that we may grow in our love and obedience, our trust and our faith as we engage God's word. He's full of grace towards us. It's not just something he's adding to it to make our life more onerous. He's constantly speaking so that we might know him better. In scripture, Jesus tells us we will see him plainly. So do we? We should. We see God made flesh in scripture, addressing sin, addressing darkness, and he bears it all on the cross for us. So at question, ultimately, we get to Scripture's trustworthiness. All Scripture is trustworthy. We don't have the right to pick, we don't, bleh, we don't have to have the right pick and choose algorithm. Everybody has their own pattern of, oh, I can pay attention to this, but this is no longer important for me. We don't have to have any of that. We don't have to sift. Um, as Paul writes to Tim Timothy, all Scripture is inspired. Sounds like a really special word. It means to be God-breathed, God-speaking. God has given us his word in such a way that we can trust it and that it continues to speak today, continues to speak through the Spirit's work. We don't have to make it palatable for a new age. Um, it's not an old word that needs to be updated to be compatible with modernism, postmodernism, post-Christian culture. It doesn't have to bow to cultural sentiments. Rather, it calls us to submit, to repent, to know and love God fully. So, the God who calls us to love him has made a way for us to be restored, to deal with our guilt and shame, our rebellion against the wisdom of heaven. He prepared himself a people so he might fully make known the price and consequences of our sin. He prepared a witness of himself 
as he walked among his people. The early disciples, the apostles, they, they passed down a testimony, a witness that was faithful. He went to the cross condemned, and yet he rose victorious over spiritual powers that sought to claim us as their own. He's preserved that testimony in Scripture for us to know and to follow. So, as we begin to consider the witness of the saints, let's return to our passage. We're going to cover verses 6 through 9. And in Moses says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here we see a reverberation of what's already been said. The one who loves God, heart, life, and might, will have scripture on the brain. Scripture informing their conduct, scripture coloring their choices and their responses. But this is suggesting more than a Bible in a year plan. Though I suggest no time like the present to start one. This requires meditation and not the um. We're not trying to blank our mind. We are trying to fill our mind with scripture, to dwell on it, to mull over it and consider it deeply and thoroughly. Here's my suggestion. Do your regular reading plan. Then pick one or two verses that stand out to you or that summarize the passage and dwell on them. What does that look like? Um, Donald Whitney in Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life uh, gives just a couple, 18 actually, um, methods of meditating on God's word. Some of them, they, they, re, they speak to you, some of them they don't, and it changes over time. Um, but let me give you just a couple examples. So for one, uh, you could meditate by praying through a text. Um, we're going to talk about prayer next week, but praying through a text is a great way to meditate on scripture. It's very similar to what we do Sunday mornings before service um, in word and prayer, whether that looks like a, you know, Acts kind of style or whether it's just what does this passage speak to what God is doing. Um, that's an example of something you might do to meditate. Um, another way is you could meditate on the ways the text points to Jesus. You can look for how the passage illuminates Jesus and his character or provides models of godly or ungodly behavior. Lots of scripture will demonstrate godly models for us to follow or ungodly models for us to run from or ways in which it illustrates man's condition apart from Christ. Some passages are really good at pointing out who Christ is and how, why we should follow him. Others are really good to point out who we are, our fallen condition, what we need as needy humans. Um, another great way is looking for application uh, in a text. That's a great way of meditating. Um, it's a fruitful way of meditating on scripture. Um, rewriting the text in your own words. Some texts that works better than others, but yeah, rewriting a text can help you meditate on it to really think through the words that you're reading instead of just reading them through quickly and moving on. Of course, the indispensable tool for meditating on scripture is going to be to memorize it. He does say to have the word of God, the, the, the law on your heart. He is exactly speaking about knowing it, knowing it such that you don't need to run back home when the 
opportunity arises, it's already in your head, it's already in your heart, it's available for you to use, to depend on. However you might choose to meditate on scripture, it's better to dwell on one verse, one passage, for 10 or 15 minutes, than to spend 15 minutes on a reading plan where you fail to engage it, fail to bring it into your day to day. Meditation over reading. Reading is good, I love reading. Um, but meditation is what God calls for as we approach scripture. So God's word is to dwell on our hearts, but he doesn't actually stop there. Um, our knowledge and understanding is not Moses' end goal or God's end goal. You can memorize the whole book of Numbers. Uh, you can quote from Deuteronomy in the original Klingon, uh, but if it is all just locked away in your, something's missing. Uh, Israel, Moses says, is to be teaching it at home. There's a whole tribe, um, the Levites, uh, to provide sacrificial service and religious instruction. Nevertheless, Scripture says, you are to be teaching it at home. You'll find plenty of opportunities. And it's pervasive. It's when you sit down for a breather. It's when you walk and the opportunity arises. It's when you're lying down, exhausted from your day's labor. Any moment is a teaching moment. When scripture means the difference between blessing in the land or the curse, you pass it on to the next generation. And as if moment by moment remembering of God's word wasn't enough, they're to write it down and wear it on their hands and between their eyes. The question of whether it was taken literally, um, we don't necessarily always take it very literally, but they actually did. Um, some of that is you start talking about you know, binding it on your hands and between your eyes. Um, in Egypt, where they had recently left, people would actually put sort of the words of the gods. They would put them on their uh, wrists as like magical amulets, protection. God is not worried about magic. He's worried about memory and identity. Anyway. Um, yeah, they're supposed to hang it on their homes and at their city gates. So this covers the whole range from personal devotion, putting it on your own self, um, to the family in the neighborhood, you know, you're putting it on your home, all the way to putting it on the city gates. When it says the home, the, the doorpost, and then it says on the gate, we're talking, you know, like the personal, the family home, and we're also talking putting it on the city wall. So we're talking a full range from personal to urban development. The whole nation is sort of going to be surrounded and inundated and characterized by God's law, by God's word on how to be successful and to please him. God's word is to be ever-present and informing who Israel is as a people. It isn't just a, a passed down tradition that we have back there that we know about, we remember from children. Um, it's not uh, the pirate code, more a suggestion than actual rules. Um, this is the path set out by God for them to be a blessing to the nations. Um, this is the manner they're going to fulfill their purpose as a nation, whether by adherence or negligence. So how are we doing as the people of God? I'm not necessarily asking if you have John 11.35 on a placard at the end of your driveway. That's just wet. Hopefully you don't have that at the end of your driveway. Um, but let's, let's start closer to home. Um, are you regularly spending time in the word with your children, your spouse, significant other, friends? Is your home 
your apartment, your car, a place where all can expect God's word to be mentioned? Is your home a teaching environment, or is it in danger or already an idol of escape, ease, accomplishment? I'll come out right out and say it, um, especially for us parents, I'm definitely speaking to myself um, right along with you. If we're not setting aside time for the family to devote itself to scripture and prayer, we're setting ourselves up for trouble down the road. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty for what's past, um, but as we look forward, let's run after Christ as well as we know how. Husbands, this goes for you as well, um, maybe especially. Are you drawing your wife to God's word regularly? Are you leading spiritually? If God has blessed you with new birth and provided you with such a blessing, can I encourage you to do what God says in his word, to lead in your home, to lead to scripture and through scripture. Uh, but let's not stop there. Christianity breaks the family mold. Jesus invites friends, neighbors, everyone to become family in a sense that couldn't have been imaginable before. Are we becoming that family? Um, is God's word on our lips, or do our conversations primarily dwell on our hobbies, our successes, our failures, our hopes, our complaints, our possessions, our unfulfilled desires? Is it all just us talking about ourselves, or are we as a community actually thriving and living inside of scripture, letting it inform who we are? Unbelieving friend, God has breathed his word so that we can know him. He called disciples who would witness his work, who would share and pass on his words and deeds. Scripture goes to great lengths to show us all God has done to rescue us from sin and its consequences. Through narrative and teaching and poetry and wisdom and warnings and history, we see God patiently developing a people faithfully leading them. Within scripture, we see Jesus, Lord of all. We see him born humbly. We, we see the character of God on full display as Jesus rebukes demons, patiently guides his people, teaches them how to pray, how to serve sacrificially, how to love as God has loved them. And so my challenge is, would you find a Christian friend to read with you through Matthew or Mark, Luke or John? Experience Jesus as he teaches and challenges us and ultimately deals with our sin once and for all. Jesus calls the self-righteous to account. He praises those of simple faith. He welcomes those who are hurting and who are poor in spirit. He calls sinners with patience and forgiveness, with understanding of their weakness and who their foe truly is. Whatever your struggle, the God we know from the word is strong, capable, and present. Would you trust him and know the mercy he's given? Believing friends, family, we, we can't blame our culture for a lack of heeding God's word. The, word. the world doesn't know the truth. They don't know where to find it. But we do, or we should. Will we speak 
and demonstrate the gospel by loving and serving sacrificially? Will you commit to growing this year in your knowledge of God by reading and meditating on his word? Would you commit to study together, not just at home, not just alone? This morning, we're called to keep, to guard, to listen, to heed, to obey. We're called to speak and remember, to bind ourselves with his word and be known by his word. Let our hearts overflow in love as we grow to know the heart of God for the lost and for his treasure, his people. Let us commit to know him better together as we build a family, a people of God who is known for its love, forgiveness, humility, and power in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of Moses as he records your words and as he teaches them to your people. Father, make us faithful. Make us love you more each day. Make our whole hearts, minds, wills, energies devoted to you. Father, help us to pass on the testimony of Jesus. Help us to know scripture well enough to bring it to bear in our own lives and in the lives of the church. God, make us a body who truly loves you and demonstrates your love. God, we thank you that you, you've made a way for us. We don't come to you uh, boasting of our knowledge. We can't hold scripture over you as a, you've said this, you must do it. God, instead, you offer grace and mercy. You offer balm, salve for our wounds and call us to know you better. God, may we take you up on the offer to know you, to count the cost, to be a disciple. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a new year as we look forward to all that you plan to do. May we run after you with all of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.